gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. Yeah, I say, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique was perfect. These odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 sweet. is Democracy Manifest. Welcome to the Culture in Anarchy podcast. For more audio and videos, please subscribe to the Culture in Anarchy podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. And follow me by my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. If you'd like to make a small contribution to the show through my Patreon account, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. And if you haven't already, go ahead and stop by iTunes and leave a great rating for our show. We have just released our first edition of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine. The issue is available on our website, and print copies can be ordered through most online retailers. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non The curious love affair between deconstruction and Marxism is truly perplexing. While on the one hand Marxians have been known to make use of any leftist trend to call attention to Marx's influence, likeness, or relevance to that trend in order to fetch new converts, the subjectivist root of deconstruction is inherently inimical to Marxism's proclaimed objectivity in design, purpose, value theory, historical materialism, and application. Deconstruction is rooted in a theory of costs, as is praxeology, since subjective preference presupposes costs for an individual. But deconstruction's simultaneous focus on the subjectivity of meaning and value cannot lend itself to Marx's cost theory of value in any way, shape, or form. Historical materialism was the idea that social interrelationships, always morphing between figurative, normative, and economic aspects, are defined first by the material productive forces. The windmill gives us feudalism, and the steam mill gives us capitalism. Nowhere do we encounter the definite ends specific individuals wish to obtain by creating the technology that increased marginal productivity and the production of material comforts for his fellow men. 
which indirectly increased productivity of the enterprising intellect in the profit motive by allowing him to keep a rate of return on his intellectual capital invested. Instead, there is just all the windmills, and all the steam mills, and all the capital. Just as in structuralism, there was all the language, absent the definite ends that specific speakers and hearers wish to obtain by first exchanging ideas transformed into words. As I noted earlier, costs are integral to any theory of capital accounting, but rational economic calculation with regard to costs are only a concern for productivity under social conditions of the private ownership of the means of production and the division of labor. Anything less entails aggression and coercion on behalf of the regulators, and so looks like some level of tyranny. By extension, alternative meanings are integral to any theory of language, but rational economic calculation with regard to meanings are only a concern for individual users of a language. If there is no competition in the higher orders of production, the capital goods industries, then there is no such thing as rational economic calculation because the accounting books for the government's capital owners will only show one column, expenditures. If all capital goods are owned by one agency, the public, read, government monopoly, then those homogenous goods may be allocated as that agency sees fit. It is as if one godlike will, manifest in one Lenin-like homo agens, must decide how the world shall be ordered independently of the individual valuations, needs, and desires of each and every citizen. Wherever the public, read the state, allocates scarce capital for use rather than profit, there is no such thing as capital accounting because there are no money prices for its supposedly homogenous resource. The government cannot earn. It can only produce. The government cannot cater to demand. It can only produce with blind faith as a guide or by means of a committee. Even worse, the government cannot know if its expenditures are cost-effective because there is no money price system wherever the government fixes exchange relations by fiat, whether in barter, labor power certificates, ration coupons, etc. The state can produce too much wheat and still experience famines in some districts. Whereas market prices are already empirical evidence of efficient distribution and capitalism as supply coordinated to demand and consumption, as well as savings, which are abstention from consumption, socialism generates the problem of distribution. This is why, to this day, socialists of all stripes, even those in denial as democratic socialists, accuse the market of failing to solve the problem of distribution. There is no one agency trying to solve the problem by co-opting all of society's resources by force and graft because the market, open bidding on capital resources, has already solved that problem. Where market prices exist, the problem is being actively solved by billions of free agents. When the free marketer replies that one central plan is anti-capitalistic and irrational, the socialist accuses the libertarian of simplicity and an assumption of a utopian belief in the benevolence of human beings. The libertarian accuses the socialist of the same fault. So where lies the truth? Is it on an extreme end or in the middle? Most will tend towards the middle, despite the fact that economics is not an empirical science that will allow anti-economic illogic to blend with logic. 
If individuals are not the source of demand, and if voluntary exchange for profit is not the source of prices, then one has to figure out how to move grain to places where it is needed. But the need is always prior to production and socialism, since profits cannot motivate individuals to outpace their competitors in providing a service. If a grain producer braves the conditions of a disaster zone in order to lessen the condition of famine, and then marks up her prices in order to secure herself against potential losses for the hazard, then she can lessen the scarcity in Darth and famine-stricken zones. In socialism, she must yield to a committee's decision about where to transport goods based on need. How long shall that committee take to reach its decisions? Which uses of the capital resource shall be met? If one ships raw grain to a talented bread producer and bread to a talented flour producer, is this a productive expenditure? What other need could the truck moving that resource serve? Which need is most important if the truck that provides a chemical or enzyme used in both breakfast cereals and cancer medicines gets redirected to transport grain, and the decision to move grain to that area resulted in a high surplus of goods that disproportionately affects cancer patients and breakfast cereals production, where cereal production is a means of distributing grain for profitable outlet. How shall the Bureau adjust its allocations quickly, and what signals will it take as evidence of the good and bad qualities of its decisions? Furthermore, how shall we know whose talents are most apt for utilizing a scarce resource that has alternative uses. Who shall receive the grain? Who shall distribute its portions? Who shall determine the household allotment? Shall it be done upon the basis of heads per household, weight, age, or race? Production divorced from demand is wasteful by definition if more profitable uses can be found for the raw materials and factors of production. Socialism is always inferior to production and demand under private ownership in the means of production, where competition can bid resources away from declining rates of return. Production cannot even be thought of as productive unless the buyers of the goods, or the users of the profitless goods, need or desire what is produced. If a committee divvies up peanuts to lessen the condition of famine on a per capita basis, and those with peanut allergies cannot consume what is allotted, then there is a de facto devaluation of peanuts that requires exchange and distribution, once again, to cover up for the failures of the all-powerful committee. The market's pricing mechanism, which reflects what consumers are willing to pay for a resource, is the manifestation of billions of transactions taking place throughout the world at any given time coordinating information that is beyond the measurement of any omnipotent government or supercomputer. If this typical Hayekian conceit sounds a little like Deconstruction's decentering discourse, then this is because Derrida occasionally co-opted the insights of subjective value theory that preceded him by a century. Derrida was often too focused on the singular writer-speaker-reader-hearer dichotomy, when he should have recognized plural nouns the market of human agents with six billion margins constantly reevaluating goods in time and space. Is an idle resource productive? It is under free market conditions, since idle resources have a role to play through scarcity, and reservation demand and the eventual drop in a resource's price to a low enough level to stimulate demand can occur. 
but an idle resource under government fiat pricing does not have a reservation demand. That resource may very well sit in a stockpile warehouse, unused and unneeded, because the government has attempted to fix everyone's desires in advance of their marginal valuations and has utterly failed to calculate wisely. A bad producer goes bankrupt. A bad government remains a bad government, and bad governments remain in power through despicable means. In order to prevent individuals from making subjective use of scarce resources sitting in those stockpiles. It is actually quite ironic that Derrida's metaphysics of presence is the very tool that Austrian economists leveled against the socialists in the 1920s, that the physiocrats used to disparage the mercantilists, and which free marketers have employed to combat Keynesians throughout the past hundred years in the sphere of deductive economic theory. How Marxian Derridaeans were ever under the misconception that the metaphysics of presence was a critique of capitalism is an astounding evidence of Marxian dogmatism and anti-economic illogic as it prevails in the postmodern academy. In order to demonstrate the thesis that deconstruction and Marxism are inherently incompatible, we shall have to turn this investigation towards the deficiencies in Marxian economic theory and take on several subsidiary considerations in the process. As I have mentioned before, Derrida's entire philosophy is heir to the pre-Socratic legacies of Anaximander and Parmenides, taken to absurd conclusions. But the post-Derridean project is a kind of neo-Marxian riff on dialectical materialism. On methodological grounds, one could only argue that the Derridean and the deconstructive Marxian enterprises are inherently linked by the difference principle, and so serves macro-treatment of language as community as a socialized collective. The Milesian school of pre-Socratic philosophers seem to have anticipated the quasi-Hegelian rhapsodies of Friedrich Engels's ever-amusing anti-During. In Engels's vision of Marxian dialectic, the thesis meets its antithesis as if by a law of nature, although what compels an antithesis, or at least a valid antithesis, for every thesis has never been established outside of religious chiliasm producing a negation and a negation of the negation ad infinitum. Thus, the emergence of the caterpillar from its cocoon as a butterfly is the negation of the caterpillar, transformed into its negation. Furthermore, death shall bear the butterfly to its own negation, the negation of the very life that negated non-existence in the first place. One is drawn back to the critique of the law of identity in our earlier discussions of Parmenides. Proving a truth is impossible, even humans act, because truth is a function of negation. In the same way, Anaximander and his fellow Milesians held that there could be no stable form of matter underneath the traditional four elements, since fire was the negation of water, and water was the negation of fire. Such elemental negations presuppose the existence of an infinite element in negative space, the apiron, which is the thing that has no limit. The apiron was the element that all of the other elements were not. In deconstruction, the apiron is the aporia, mutatis mutandis. The aporia is a place that marks undecidability in the deconstructionist philosophy. For terms like imitative craft in the discussion of Browning from the previous section, the aporia is that place where we cannot determine which meaning of imitative craft ought to hold sway. Is imitative craft a true platonic reference? To choose Plato over the Cape Colony anti-colonialist criticism of his overlords 
is to privilege imperial Western intellectuals over African intellectuals. Is Etrurian circlets a bona fide Miltonic reference? To choose Milton's influence on that metaphor is to root interpretation in a white Anglo-Saxon tradition, which was particularly sexist in the 17th century. Does a combination of Webster's definitions for imitative and craft itself hold a stable meaning, that it could stand as objectively determined outside of any one individual use or desire by a human being? To select Noah Webster's definitions is to accept terms by conditions established by an American intellectual of the Revolutionary War era where slavery existed by mandate of federal and state government compromises, and if a meaning could be objectively determined outside of any one individual human being through some other form than cooperation or context, then who is it that knows that meaning? Context, cooperation, description, and deduction are undoubtedly the limiting factors for the relevance and decidability of such issues, but the Derridaeans have suggested that the contextual clues for the derivation of meaning presuppose oppositions that mean something else entirely. A is not A. Rather, A is B through Z. The meaning means what it does not really mean. It is a meaning evacuated of meaning, which nevertheless means something meaningful. Unfortunately, even that supplementary meaning is evacuated of meaning, and so on. B is not A, nor yet C through Z. The crux of the great error in the structuralist and Derridean programs lies in the fact that there is no quantum of meaning in a word itself, as an isolated empirical unit, even in a condition of difference, which means that difference is a value judgment, namely, I prefer deferring the meaning of difference to something different, rather than accepting difference according to its usual understanding. Words are means. Language is a means. Context belongs to history and the external world, but valuation and meaning are problems of the human mind in action. We cannot even satisfactorily define aporia on deconstruction's grounds, since the aporia marks the irreconcilable differentiation between subjective interpretations of meaning. If these subjective interpretations are, in themselves, always marked by a difference in the subjective experiences of each interpreter, then there could never be a way of marking the difference between them because we have no empirical meaning sensor capable of quantifying subjectivity of difference into a metrical unit so as to pronounce subjective interpretations as irreconcilable on some intertemporal margin. How shall we measure meaning and value? Shall we do so in liters, miles, phonemes, or ohms? Is Browning twice as good a poet as Cowley? Or perhaps a thousandfold? What unit are we employing to measure them? Metric feet? Insofar as these latter considerations are true, aporia and difference cannot serve the deconstructionist any service except to show that individuals are willing to reconcile their differences in subjectivity by adopting a new interpretation or shedding parts of the old. Like a market pricing mechanism, Aporia and Diverance show not where individuals encounter irreconcilable differences, but where they begin to evaluate their preferences in such a way as to see where, for example, a Platonic-Miltonic reference for imitative craft will serve a more preferable service on the margin than a cobbled definition drawn from Webster's Dictionary. 
As a teacher and a student, a platonic Miltonic reference serves me well. Marx? Eh, not so much. But in this particular analysis of deconstruction, Marx will serve me well to show how deconstruction gets us towards subjective value economics to the detriment of Marx's old objective value canard. Part of the problem for deconstruction lies in the fact that the philosophy tends to treat language and logic in the historicist framework as a historical text subjectively interpreted, unfolding in time without objective qualifications concerning the sufficiency of means to obtain ends within language to guide the text's revelation. To understand this idea, we might think of the misdirection I engaged in when identifying Castellani's imitative craft in my own subjective experience. Deconstruction's treatment of language is only true insofar as the words are so many things that exist and can be manipulated like scientific grammatical variables in a dictionary. Apple, bear, cat, Derrida. Nevertheless, meaning only arises in a teleological operation, and a teleological operation is always guided by a value in the present directed towards an uncertain future with expectations of a positive outcome capable of removing felt uneasiness. In communication, this involves understanding, and understanding requires a logical structure of mind independent of language, since language is simply a means of projecting value and meaning in interpersonal exchange. Deconstruction may be insightful as a speculative essay on aesthetics, but it is nonsense and yet de facto rational. In other words, it is wrong if it is used as anything else than a guide to valuation. An intellectual fad? A market trend with particular consumer appeal and brand loyalty? Or a religion? There is no macro variable of infinite meaning, transcending human cognition. If there were infinite meaning, then I could obtain all information if I could just manage to wrap my mind around that infinite meaning. Because I cannot transcend human cognition to take up Hegel's eyes of God, the geist that mysteriously guides history's revelation independent of praxeology and the individual will, I cannot grasp the macro variable of infinite meaning. I must set ends towards which to strive in each operation that I undertake. I nevertheless know that I cannot achieve infinite meaning, since infinite meaning would require me to don the mantle of God, to have ready access to all means for all ends, and to cease acting with particular designs, or more precisely, to hold value in a constant relation to indifference. I must have not only a bunch of plans unfolding in time, but also the plan for all things. At the root of means is utility and scarcity, the alternative uses to which scarce means may be put to achieve an end that lessens some other condition of scarcity. Alternative uses presuppose more action. This also presupposes that value is not in the thing, but in the individual's desire for the use of a thing. And the use of the thing does not exist as a condition in the universe subject to observation and experience. Where, pray tell, is the species of use without prior intentionality outside of theology and without a particular agent acting in space and time? So that experience cannot tell us of value except that exchanges and actions experienced and observed are evidence of prior valuation that cannot be observed and experienced. 
The aprioristic theory of human action, the fact that individuals act for attainment of a good in the future through the present expenditure of labor, troubles the primacy of the binary opposition upon which deconstruction preys. Language is, by and large, a system of means, not ends. When language becomes an end, and we seek value in language in order to achieve more language, language becomes tied up in comparative valuations of language. To pronounce an indeterminacy of value in language units, then, is to acknowledge subjective exchange relations. Value is not in language, even when one was laboring under structuralism's assumption that language meant something only in relation to other language. When I encounter Browning's imitative craft, the words have a logical value and a deferred and possibly inflationary value if I decide to pursue that other value. Perhaps the inflationary value can shed light on the imitative craft in another sense, and therefore provide a lead-in to the controversies surrounding artistry in general. This deferral is a decidedly essential pedagogical tool for an English teacher who is trying to remind students of other texts that they may have read during the semester, or perhaps to build on allusions and metaphors to cultivate an aesthetic appreciation that reaches back in time to the riddling mysteries that have always occupied humankind. But most readers of mystery novels will have no use for this deferral outside of following clues within a text. Through such investigations, we play with extension and intention in definition and application, denotation and connotation. A deferral of meaning behind Casalani's imitative craft towards Marxist theory of capitalist exploitation and surplus value, which would make imitative craft the bourgeois surplus profit obtained in capital production, would be a strain on my credulity unless I was already prepossessed by the notion that Marx's capitalist exploitation theory is valid in all cases, in all times, and whatever conditions might exist wherever private property exists. Most logical readers who have braved the born of Das Kapital beyond the first 30 pages, usually recapped in college courses, have usually come to the realization that Marx's capitalist exploitation theory is profoundly self-contradictory, as is much of his philosophy. Contradictions do not inherently mean that the premises were wrong. After all, a premise may be true and a conclusion may be wrong, or vice versa. But any philosophy that accepts all contradictions in the name of a mystical dialectic triad projects objective value theories and yet proclaims its own truth despite continual self-contradiction and a belief that proving something true is impossible. Namely, using historical materialism as a hedge against a critique of socialism's theoretical features and failures prior to socialization. Such a philosophy ought to be avoided like the plague by those who value logical consistency and sound scholarship. And though we may still obtain to the notion that meaning is inflated through all of the teleological operations that defer meaning to different interpretive networks, that macro variable of meaning... The market price, which represents alternative uses competing for scarce means, we try to hold constant is still only a collection of each and every individual teleological operation that determines meaning on an individual scale in precise and definite context through logic and grammar. What does a text really mean? Well, that depends. What is your desire? Your real desire? 
one is not bound to an admission of logic's primacy in human action. Derrida has proven that, as have legions of other country bumpkins, by the way. But one cannot even engage in an analysis of the determinacy or indeterminacy of meaning without partaking of logic's benefits in teleology, etiology, and the subject-predicate standard. Taking these considerations in hand, how might Marxian economic theory apply to the science of human action and Browning's imitative craft? I would have to allow Marx to socialize my logical structure of mind in order to engage in a Marxian deferral of meaning for Browning's imitative craft. I would have to surrender my preferences and capacity for choice at the door and become Marx's universal seek promo. In Marx's schematic, economic theory, even humans use means to attain ends in the passage of time, is a historical pronouncement, but is not binding upon the future. Hence, A is A is not binding either, nor yet is 1 plus 2 equals 3 a priori true, nor yet is the determination that 1 plus 3 equals 6 is not true binding upon the future, even though it is the formula for fraud and currency manipulation, inflation, bank credit expansion, fractional reserve banking, theft, etc. At such a moment of Marxist literary redirection, I would place Marx in front of Browning. Marx's words, combining into a theory which is not rooted in the logical structure of mind, even though it is a priori, and just happens to be incorrect, must become the normative objective theory of economics and social relations for humankind. Under such conditions, the true metaphysics of presence rears its head. What is sacrificed when the logical structure of mind and the consistency of elementary logic, even truths like subjects predicate and humans act, cannot be held as a priori true? Under such conditions, everything definitively human must be sacrificed as an alternative foregone. We must cultivate the correct class consciousness of the proletariat and do away with human nature. We must adopt the consciousness of the tenured lumber-lumper and the professorial ditch-digger. We must surrender ourselves as legions of tabulae rasae, as subject to the might of him who wields the biggest piece of chalk. listening to the culture and anarchy podcast please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com if you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list you'll receive access to free ebooks including the text for a rationalist critique of deconstruction and in march 2017 the spirit of market anarchy coming up later this year on the culture and anarchy podcast we will be debuting several episodic series first up the Shadow of All Doubts, in 
in which I chronicle sketches from the history of skepticism and free thought by analyzing conflicts between individualists and both state and church. The other series that will premiere are The Heist, historical sketches from the world's gold confiscations, which begins with the story of King Philip IV and the Knights Templar and proceeds all the way through FDR and beyond. Another series, The Jacobin Book Club, Neoconservatism, A Requiem, and finally, a rationalist take on the history of literary criticism. Towards the end of the year, we will be moving to a work of philosophy and religion entitled The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, wherein I lay out the world's first argument from grammar. Atheists and theists may in fact both be incorrect, where it concerns the rational concept of God, insofar as the concept of a rationally conceived God arises out of a priori grammar. Lots of exciting developments coming up, so please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. Christian hermeneutics and exegesis for nearly two millennia pursued this very same course of interpretation when approaching critical analysis of the Bible. The hermeneutist interpreted scripture in the historicist framework, attempting to recover the original intent of the gospel scribes as they manifested their meaning in ink during the 1st and 2nd centuries CE. All the while, the hermeneutist presumed that the premises of the Bible were sound, indisputable, and consistent, such that what the hermeneutist believed in the present could be validated by the interpretation of a text. Such historicist readings of literature were de facto a demonstration of Derrida's metaphysics of presence. Textual scholars in the late 1700s were busy going back to study manuscript transmission of religious texts, and what they found was a far more human phenomenon. We do not have the original text of the New Testament. We have copies upon copies transcribed by Greek slaves, some of whom were actually illiterate in the language of transcription, but were able copyists. Some of the most revered stories, Jesus interceding on the behalf of a woman about to be stoned, crying out, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Some of these stories were actually fictional stories added much later in textual transmissions in the margins, by creative copyists looking to add flavor to their religious books. Furthermore, texts were selected for inclusion and edited or translated to conform with doctrinal norms legislated by the Catholic or Orthodox churches over the centuries as Christianity spread amongst the lay folk of Western Europe, bastardized, codified orthodoxy. What was presumed true in the present was not true in the past, such that one could use these early texts, of which we have no original extant copies to justify everything that came after or that was presumed true in the present. Furthermore, one could not try to recover a historical zeitgeist from a specific era because those erstwhile interpretations were themselves evidence of competition with other interpretations and texts, many of which no longer exist or were intentionally destroyed by the orthodoxy so as to provide us with the unseen part of human experience. What holds true in the limitations of historical analysis today held true the day after the first gospel was written, either by a Greek convert or an apostle, whichever may be the case. Logic, which is individualized, 
does not have a text. It is not imposed upon the mind. It is the mind. Ignorance of logic does not mean that an individual cannot utilize logic, but instead is evidence that an individual can utilize logic in order to reach unattainable ends by means of logical argumentation, generally by neglecting the time-invariant features of human action that are at work even when utilizing features of logical argumentation for unobtainable ends. In shorthand, sometimes people are just plain wrong. In the Marxian hermeneutical tradition, Marx appropriates and predicates Browning's words, placing a limitation on subjective interpretation. Marx's truth becomes the standard of all exchange. And what is that standard in the Marxian setting? Is it the labor put into the work, as Marx argues in the first 30 pages of Das Kapital? Or its contradictory exchange value as an average rate of return on capital invested as Marx seems to argue in both the first and third volumes of Das Kapital when trying to resolve how market prices actually work. Marxians have argued that Marx wrote in the dialectic method, which may in fact explain his strange argumentative style. But what shall we make of the fact that Marx never unraveled the value paradox, and he was altogether ignorant of the crucial problem of scarcity in supply and demand, the alternative of nothing, that humans tend to reject in favor of anything? If the value arrived at in exchange, a market price, is the rate of return on capital invested, then what are the labor theory of value and surplus profit, namely the profit that a capitalist turns on the exploitation of labor power against the labor metaphysically invested in a thing, but additional costs undertaken freely by homo agents in civil competition to avoid a regression into scarcity, thus endearing him to labor on the behalf of the capitalist? And if those two elements of exploitation theory are but freely undertaken cost, since producers can only produce what the workers themselves demand as the source of the demand, as more preferable than the alternatives foregone, starvation, unemployment, subsistent agriculture, the dole, dependency, economic autism, feudal serfdom, patrician condescension, a war of all against all, and idleness, then how does class conflict arise in a world of scarcity, since foregoing continual production would entail starvation and death in the long run? And if economic isolation, namely autarky and self-sufficiency, are more costly than international trade without state interference, see Ricardo's Law of Comparative Advantage, then why should anyone seek an ethic of economic isolation, which is more costly than free markets? Is not the goal of Marxian socialism to reduce waste? There are answers, of course. The free trade argument is theoretical and not necessarily practical. People are prejudiced, biased, myopic, ideological, and cultural. Persons of low IQ cannot grasp the complex arguments of individuals with higher IQ. Free trade is a theoretical argument that occurs in a vacuum where individuals understand only one universal truth, with complex deductive arguments that remains universally true in the empirical realm as well as the theoretical realm that humans act for the sake of individual self-interest, and that individual self-interest is not in direct conflict with society's self-interest. Not everyone will grasp this argument, its reasoning, or its complexities as they are revealed through historical analysis. Clearly, some individuals will be directly and disproportionately affected by free trade. Religious monopolists, closed-minded cultural Tories, economic nationalists, tax consumers, political staffers who subsist by means of the state, 
and those committed to cultural associations at odds with free trade, they shall suffer where competition, profits, private property, and individual rights before the law are enshrined and protected from coercion and aggression. Furthermore, innovation and technology, which push productivity at the cost of static stability, that is, technological productivity directly displaces some workers while forwarding the economic progress of all individuals indirectly by increasing access to scarce resources through rises in marginal productivity, present negative drawbacks in the short run that those displaced feel strongly and come to resent, especially when culture must cope with technological process. If the Industrial Revolution gave rise to horrible working conditions in crowded factories, then why did the working class file into those factories instead of pursuing unadulterated bliss elsewhere under the benign graces of a Fabian aristocracy in a world of apparent abundance? Why didn't those working classes simply expropriate from the expropriators? Might they have balked at the moral superiority of socialism's continual theft and economic leveling? Might private property be something important for improvements in social conditions? May horrible working conditions and crowded factories not be the means to freedom from patrician condescension, a kind of darkened path dimly lit by freedom's guiding light? And did Marx have the answer for his own self-contradictory system, which generations of literati have bought into because they in fact understand nothing of the most basic principles of economics, even though they purport to practice them? Supposing that each individual in the market interprets a text subjectively, does that not entail that each reader, in fact, engages in the same fallacy as the hermeneutist of Marx who demand objective readings? Do readers not interpret text based on their own prejudices, and are not these binding for the individual in an objective sense? Certainly, at least in some degree. Any reader who reasons with logical consistency, however, will not fall into the trap of the hermeneutist. A consensus meaning in the great tradition of literature and language against which personal prejudice is forwarded is generally a reflection of what has already been freely chosen because it requires the least strain of one's credulity when read against history, style, and biography. This market process of interpretation is no surefire way to achieve stable and consistent meaning sufficient to satisfy all individual desires in the diachronic and synchronic flux of time. Remember, free markets do not promise utopias, but instead promise a greater yield of returns than centrally planned economies by prizing stability by means of increased productivity over stability of incomes and output quotas. Competition promises variety above scarcity, not the elimination of scarcity as such. The great tradition is a metaphor for an equilibrium construct, nonetheless, which helps to build a culture based on private property and individual liberty. Readers carry with them beliefs and traditions that are not easy to overthrow, as do writers. Nevertheless, the process of trial and error interpretation and logical analysis are the best systems that we can arrive at as long as we are willing to learn new things. Critical readings are market trends. The Marxian interpretation of imitative craft as capitalist exploitation theory and code does not satisfy me any more than I expect this section of my praxeological critique of deconstruction shall please a devoted Marxian. The difference lies in the fact that praxeology is as valid for me as it is for the devoted Marxian. In other words, 
The cost foregone by choosing a particular reading of a text is marginalized in a praxeological framework by winnowing out absurd meanings. Imitative craft has nothing to do with American puppetry in the year 2020. And self-contradictory interpretive networks. In vulgar parlance, one uses the common sense to derive meaning. Even so, the common sense is not an entity independent of each and every subjective valuation of an individual actor. Common sense is the ethic of cooperation at the root of social grooming and logic, the great splitting of semantic differences as the expression of the self-interested harmony of long-run interest. Common sense is, as such, proof enough that the aporia and difference are measures of indifference and not of interest. Karl Marx believed that value, which he never satisfactorily defined for his Marxian followers or his subjectivist critics, and which he divided between utility, labor, exchange, use, and the historical price, was invested in a thing through the labor of its creator, or perhaps labor power, and he argued throughout his life that the labor value determined a thing's eventual exchange value above a thing's utility to any one single individual human being. While this sounds a bit like saying that supply creates demand or that demand creates supply, Marx confuses empirical revelations of value, historical prices, including the price of labor itself, as causative factors with regard to valuation and preference. Value was, by and large, an average of individual exchange values. While a car producer may have a suggested retail price given by the producer, uh, MSRP, Sales prices will vary from transaction to transaction based on region, demographic, sales volumes, desperation, resistance to negotiation, and individuals' willingness to bargain, and so on. Value is found in the average or probabilistic outcomes of transactions, since Marx did not believe that anything in economics was a priori or subjective. He rejected the subjectivity of value on the part of the consumer as the informative part of social need that was market demand, which were all prior pressures upon the empirical revelation of a historical price. He adopted this macroeconomic cost theory of value from Adam Smith and David Ricardo, which were the two biggest names in capital theory during Marx's own lifetime. Marx was not wrong in noting that labor, human effort applied in time, was tied to value. An individual utilizes human effort in time and space in order to use means to achieve ends, but where he erred was in his focus, where he placed value. For if Robinson Crusoe decides to build a boat in order to exchange fish for Friday's bananas, but if he fails to build the boat correctly, experiences a shipwreck while fishing, suffers a leg injury from a pulled muscle while swimming back to shore, all of which leads to the loss of time and energy, which he could have utilized profitably in some alternative enterprise, then labor can produce not a value that nets a positive rate of return, but instead a loss, even though we do not see the cost in this tiny Crusoe economy where no competitors exist. Nevertheless, we understand that the labor upon a failed fishing enterprise would never have been expended had Crusoe not already seen value in the enterprise, which is never actually assured of profitability prior to the enactment of labor, nor yet if it is a success and Friday decides that he is not in the least bit interested in Friday's fish. Some means, quite simply, will not achieve their ends. Even then, 
We note that Crusoe has produced value for himself, even if he has not done so in exchange with Friday. Crusoe can build a perfect ship, utilizing several days' labor to craft a perfect vessel that may or may not yield a profit. Since fishing is not a sure enterprise if the fish are more elusive than Crusoe is adept at fishing. Or Crusoe can decide that whatever floats and carries him to a sufficient depth, perhaps not as far as a vessel crafted over three days, will suffice and not further debilitate him through hunger. After suffering a shipwreck, Crusoe has a couple of options. He can ignore the fact that he now has no sure means of getting back to the shore, and he can take a spear, swim down to the reef below, and fish. He can catch fish and expend his energy to achieve his goal. Whether he will have the energy to get back to the shore and avoid drowning with a truck of fish, that is the cost that he must consider. Does he value the fish more than the risk? He does not, so he swims towards shore, noting that the undertow is fighting against the gains he is making with mild strokes. He can decide to swim harder against the undertow in order to keep from drifting further away, or he can refrain from doing so. If he swims harder, he risks injury and exhaustion, but if he relents, he may find his gains upon the shore are lost and that he will have expended time and effort in vain while making no headway. So he pushes harder and suffers a debilitating cramp, and yet, that expenditure of time and effort pushes him over the undertow. He can cope with the leg injury after getting close enough to the shore to cancel out that factor. Through all of this, we see that value is not in the fish. It is not in the boat. It is not in the undertow. Value was antecedent to the historical price of fish to bananas that never materialized as an empirical datum. Value was never in things, but was instead in preferring one state of affairs over another, and that other state of affairs never revealed itself to empirical measurement. Where Smith and Ricardo erred, so too did Marx, but on his own terms. Smith and Ricardo had the wrong theory, but they did not reject economics as inherently contradictory. Marx argued that capitalism, read economics, was inherently contradictory, but Marx nevertheless was riddled in contradictions even in his explanations of those transcendent contradictions that he so rapidly wished to expose. That the labor theory of value was wrong did not trouble him, since when Marx laid out his vision of capitalism, he was not arguing that he knew exactly how capitalism did function. What he sought to prove was that the labor theory of value in Smith and Ricardo created the eventual demise of capitalism in the long run by degrading the workers and yielding one factory monopoly conditions and the production of scarcity. He wanted to show that capitalism was undesirable on the margin where socialism was an alternative. He did not describe the economics of socialism. He wrote of capitalism instead since socialism was to arrive out of capitalism after capitalism failed in and of itself. If the labor theory of value was wrong, then even this did not entail that capitalism would not create the need for its eventual demise in the long run. One would, however, require a new means by which to prove that capitalism would eventually lead to its own demise. And if socialism is to replace capitalism, and even I do not deny this as a temporary possibility for years or decades, until society dissolves into chaos, theft, and murder, since representative democracy is a means to socialism, even though I think the apparent failings of socialism become more apparent the further from the free market that the West moves, 
then how socialism shall do so, say through welfare statism, warfare statism, or a rotating focus upon either statism, shall have to find explanation within Marx's thought. Footnote. In Marxism, philosophy, and economics, the brilliant Chicago School economist Thomas Sowell makes a rather extraordinary claim that Marx did not have a theory of value, but instead had what he himself referred to as a definition or concept of value. While Sowell's book is clearly more than fair in its treatment of Marx, arguing that the infamous labor theory of value was almost exclusively a hallmark of Marxism-Leninism or Engels's Marxism is absurd. Sowell gives due credit to Marx's recognition in the first and third volumes of Das Kapital that exchange relations are a determining factor of market prices. Granted, I wondered whether an older and wiser Sowell might not have changed his opinion on this matter. How the theory of capitalist exploitation could be reconciled with prices dependent upon subjective wants and exchange relations is absolutely unresolved in Das Kapital's three enormous volumes, even if, indeed, Marx considered the idea of proving a concept to be ridiculous. I have to imagine that Sowell was trying to one-up Bombavirk's killer critique of Marxism by providing a dialectical analysis. But if Marx did not have a theory of value and surplus profit, then he had no theory of capitalist exploitation, since a theory of value is integral to understanding capital accounting, consumer demand, or social need for exchange relations, and market prices. Since Marx's system was irreconcilable, we could chalk up his inconsistencies to that. Nevertheless, Marx's system did have a theory of value, even if that theory could hardly be called a true one. One must entertain the possibility that Marx made an error, that he had an end for which he did not provide sufficient means, namely evidence, logic, understanding, or consistency. How could capitalist exploitation be determined if there is no objective theory of value to discuss price formation? If Sowell's Marx had no theory of capitalist exploitation rooted in a theory of value, then Sowell's conception of Marxism is but a pale shade of Marxian Marxism. How can exchanges happen such that resources are ever allocated under an anarchic pricing mechanism without that pricing mechanism being driven by a theory of value? In fact, without a theory of capitalist exploitation, and without at least a basic outline for a rudimentary and relaxed cost-of-production theory of value, then it is difficult to see what statements like the following mean. The value of a commodity, therefore, varies directly as the quantity, and inversely as the productivity of the labor which finds its realization within the commodity. Now we know the substance of value. It is labor. We know the measure of its magnitude. It is labor time. Substance schmubstance. Labor is Marx's objective measure of magnitude. Time was redundant. There is no timeless labor. Substance was redundant. There is no laborless time. Sowell is scrupulous to the maximum in his commitment to presenting a dialectical das Kapital that might explain Marx and his own preferred network of meaning. But what if the many man-on-the-street propaganda tracks that Marx and Engels produce, which clearly present the labor theory of value in bastardized Das Kapital form, in no uncertain terms? Is there no connection between the two theories presented? Was one a lie and the other one a true exposition of Marxian socialism? And if so, which was which? Marx's exploitation theory and his objective value error were useful. 
even if not true. Is it not just as plausible that Marx was writing himself out of an untenable theory of value in the third volume after several decades of fruitless research and incessant hair-pulling? Might he not have surrendered his objective value theory without admitting it, since he could never develop what he proposed in volume one? Contemporary economists criticize Marx's dialectic along with his so-called theory of value because Marx's system defining exploitation as an ethical argument for socialism could never be reconciled or explained without recourse to a labor theory of value. We criticize Marx's theory from a theoretical standpoint, not from an historical empirical standpoint, much less by what Marx believed that his system could explain if only we could understand that his contradictions were necessary or that logic was necessarily illogical. We cannot stand back and say that Marx did not have a theory of value or that his system was dialectical. Either it was a comprehensive system or it was not. Insofar as it was a comprehensive system, it relied upon, one, theoretical inconclusiveness, and two, a labor theory of value. With a weak dialectical understanding of Marx's often self-contradictory writings, we could turn the following passage into proof that Marx had synthesized himself into a hardcore Austrian at heart by the time he reached the third volume of Das Kapital. He writes, Hence we note the phenomenon that crises do not show themselves nor break forth first in the retail business, which deals with direct consumption, but in the spheres of wholesale business and banking, by which the money capital of society is placed at the disposal of wholesale business. Das Kapital, Volume 3, Part 4, Section 4. This was perhaps the most intelligent passage to ever flow from Marx's pen, though it did not originally flow from Marx's pen. And were we to give Marx a ridiculously generous and, and anachronistic reading, we might acknowledge that even Marx did not believe that economic stimulus could save the Fabian policies of the Keynesians in the long run, since big credit expansion through fractional reserve lending, interest rate manipulation, drives the booms of the business cycle and the inevitable bust. How might we reconcile that with the first 30 pages of Das Kapital? Because means are scarce resources that have alternative uses, there could never be an inviolable labor value in a good, much less an inviolable use value for a good. The antique market is a prime example of this truth, and Marx understood this somewhat hazily, even if the Marxians did not. In one of the more bizarre passages from Das Kapital's third volume, Marx notes that values for antiques and works of art of certain masters whose prices cannot be reproduced by labor, might be determined by many accidental combinations. In order to sell a thing, nothing more is required than it can be monopolized and alienated. What is an accidental combination? Does consumer demand play no role? This is almost certainly a foregone conclusion given Marx's notorious temper tantrums on the vulgar economist's discussion of supply and demand in the formation of prices. Is scarcity not the most vital ingredient in this equation, in any economic equation? Without scarcity, there is no impetus to action. Without action, there is the unadulterated satiety of the deity, who can enact ends because all means are ready at hand. And under such assumptions, there is a lack of economics because one need never economize. Monopolizing and alienating a good is one way of discussing ownership, but it is also a component of consumption, even of eating food and drinking water. Are these acts immoral at base? Must they, too, be eradicated? Also, the fact that one can forge an antique or a master painting, for example, the Rembrandt phenomenon, 
to earn a profit under fraudulent auspices presupposes that works of art of certain masters is a much more difficult economic good to accept from a theory of value and interest than what Marx set in place in his discussion of rents. False Rembrandts circulate in hand with true Rembrandts, even if Marx were working under the assumption of Say's Law, almost certainly a foregone conclusion, given Marx's notorious temper tantrums on that issue as well, such that a supply creates its own demand, and were accidental combinations code for the subjectivity of consumer desires, something more would be required to determine a price. Competition, money, capital accounting, which presupposes private ownership in the means of production, and private property rights. While the latter might be covered by Marx's notion of monopoly if we were to push Marx's ambiguous terminology to its limits, something tells me that this is not what Marx meant at all, since he crafted a cost-of-production theory of value to explain the formation of prices under capitalism. Even worse, if we say that those economic truths regarding individual valuation and scarce resources with alternative uses are only features of a market economy, and that a Marxian socialist economy is immune to those facts because scarce resources have only state-approved uses, then we must say that humans do not value goods at all, and that they must be forced to value things by fiat, and that someone must do the ordering and circumventing of individual desires, and the tyrannizing over the marketplace. This conclusion may not be immediately apparent, but if we accept Marx's position that subjective valuation occurs only in the undesirable anarchy of production, the free market, then we must simultaneously say that we desire a state affairs in which individuals do not value goods to satisfy their margins, in which the market price never develops because nobody is competing for the factors of production and capital that a socialistic monopoly owns outright to the exclusion of private management, and that someone must consciously do what 6 billion people in the marketplace are already doing to solve the problem of distribution. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold time. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much money now that we have to borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pockets. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas. But I never realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. The wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years.
I chose to teach you all the main techniques. This ain't bull, let's have of it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their track Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.